Today's podcast is not going to be pretty. I'm just warning you up front. We're going to get into some pretty gross stuff. But hey, nature ain't always rainbows, buttercups, and butterfly kisses. This episode is about death and decay. I want to tell you about the organisms that are out there doing the job that nobody else wants, getting rid of dead bodies. Think of them like the mafia cleaners of the forest. Some of them might give us the willies or activate our gag reflex, but they perform a very important ecological function, recycling nutrients. And without them, the world would be a lot messier and a whole lot stinkier. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the Carrion Crew. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is Dispatches from the Forest. Earlier this year, I found a dead deer, an adult doe, in the woods here at Dispatches HQ. Most likely, it had been hit by a car on the nearby road. It kind of looked like it had suffered a broken leg and probably managed to make it into the woods about 100 yards from the road before it died. Now, in addition to the broken leg, it had a large wound on its hindquarters, but it was otherwise intact when I found it. Judging by the condition of the carcass, my best semi-educated guess is that it had been there for maybe 24 hours, more or less. Now, our initial reaction is to think, oh, that poor deer, what a tragedy, and to be certain, it was a bad day for that deer. But looking at it another way, it was a good day for the members of the carrion crew, the animals that survive by scavenging the dead and assisting with the process of decomposition. When I told my family there was a dead deer in our woods, they immediately wanted to see it, and I'm not sure if I should be proud or a little bit concerned that their reaction was more cool than ew, gross. My kids decided they wanted to go back every day to see the process of decay play out, and I realized that this was a great opportunity to witness a perfectly natural process in action. What we saw over those days was actually a bit surprising. The carcass of that deer did not last nearly as long as we expected. When I first found it, it was already covered in flies. Or at least the exposed wounds and fluids were. Flies are generally the first to colonize a carcass. More specifically, the species of fly that is usually found on carrion is the blowfly, although other species like the housefly might be present too. Blowflies look pretty much the same as houseflies, although the colors of blowflies are usually brighter, like a metallic green or blue, while houseflies are usually gray. Houseflies and blowflies belong to different families. An entomologist could probably get into the specific differences, but blowflies are typically the first to colonize a carcass because they can smell dead animal matter from up to a mile away. There's actually a whole field of study dedicated to the pattern of successive species of invertebrates that colonize dead bodies. It's called forensic entomology. Forensic entomologists use the presence of various insect species and their larvae in crime scene investigations to estimate the post-mortem interval, the amount of time between death and discovery of the body. I may have missed my calling, but my oldest child found this idea fascinating. The flies lay their eggs on the carcass, and their larvae, you know them, you gag when you see them, yes, I'm talking about maggots, feed on the carrion. 
Hatching from an egg to the first larval stage takes anywhere between 8 and 24 hours. They progress through three larval stages over the course of the next 6 to 11 days before burrowing into the ground to pupate. It takes another 1 to 2 weeks before they emerge as adults. Adult blowflies can be vectors for disease transmission in human and other animals. I mean, let's be real. Feeding and reproducing on carrion and poop does have its drawbacks, but they can also be beneficial. Blowflies will sometimes lay eggs in the open wounds of living animals. The larva can be helpful by consuming dead flesh and preventing infection, although the larva of some fly species can damage healthy tissue too. When I was a kid, maybe 9 or 10 years old, I found a young red squirrel with a broken tail. It had actually come right up to me and let me handle it. Maggots had infested the open wound of the break, and at the time, I thought that was a bad thing. But now, I have hope that the little guy was okay, and maybe just ended up with a shorter tail than the other squirrels in the forest. Now, the use of maggots to treat wounds actually dates back thousands of years. Ancient cultures like the Mayans and Aboriginal tribes in Australia are known to have used maggots to treat wounds. The beneficial effects of maggots for wound care was documented in France in the 1500s and also during the Civil War. Doctors in those times documented soldiers whose wounds had become infested with maggots and not only survived their wounds, but healed better. Today, maggot debridement therapy, or MDT, because when you make it initials it sounds more official and less gross, where sterilized maggots are intentionally introduced to a wound is a legitimate medical treatment for certain types of wounds. Now on day two of our observations, the rib cage of the carcass had been exposed and most of the meat had been stripped from the back half. The carcass had also been rotated about 90 degrees. Now obviously this was not the work of flies, but something much larger that had visited during the night. The most likely culprits were foxes, possums, or raccoons, all of which I have seen in my woods, and all of which are opportunistic feeders that will eat carrion if it's available. Sure enough, after sunset that night, I went out with my headlamp and spotted a raccoon near the carcass. Many other large mammals are also attracted to carrion. Depending on where you live, scavengers can include coyotes, bears, wolves, mountain lions, bobcats, and weasels, just to name a few. Now, I've been told there's a black bear in an area about a mile and a half from my house, but I think if it had made it to here, there would have been some other signs of its presence. You know, big steaming piles of evidence, along with footprints in the mud and probably knocked over garbage cans. So I don't think it paid this carcass a visit. I also don't think there are coyotes in my neighborhood, and I'm basing that on the fact that I haven't seen or heard any, but hey, I could be wrong. The last episode of this podcast was all about coyotes, and there is certainly enough wooded areas and green space nearby to support them. By the third day, the carcass had been dragged about 20 feet from its original spot, and the bulk of the meat was gone. Whatever had been moving it had taken the entire rib cage. It was just gone. I wished I had a trail camera at that time so I could have seen what visited in the night. All that was left was the hide, leg bones, shoulder blades, and the smell. The odor of decay was strong. On a side note, my oldest child took one of the shoulder blades, boiled it, and soaked it in hydrogen peroxide. They really wanted the skull, but it had disappeared along with the ribcage. Now, if you've smelled a dead animal, you know that the odor is distinctive and pretty unforgettable. The smell of death is caused by the action of bacteria breaking down the tissues into more than 400 organic compounds, primarily gases and salts. This process begins pretty much as soon as the animal has died. 
Carcasses that are not opened by scavengers will begin to bloat as the gases build up, which is why dead animals in water will float to the surface. At this point, the vultures had finally found it. Vultures are a pretty common sight in my area, especially on roadkill, and I was a little surprised it took them this long to find such a large carcass, but it probably had to do with the fact that it was in the woods and not out in the open. Had it been out in the open, I'm sure they would have found it much quicker. Just like mammals, there are quite a few birds that will feed on carrion if it's available, including eagles, hawks, crows, magpies, and blue jays. But vultures feed almost exclusively on carrion, which is why they're closely associated with death. While many birds don't have a good sense of smell, vultures have the largest olfactory system of any bird. They can smell the beginnings of decay from over a mile away. Now, you probably have an image in your mind of a large flock of vultures circling above a sun-baked desert just waiting for the death of some poor, wretched, thirsty traveler. Am I right? We even call people vultures if they're waiting for a tragedy to occur so they can benefit. But this image is, I think, a bit unfair to the actual vultures. On very rare occasions, vultures may kill sick or injured animals, but they don't generally attack healthy animals. They don't circle hungrily overhead waiting for death to occur. They just show up after it already has. Vultures roost together at night, usually in dead leafless trees, which, let's be honest, doesn't help their image any, and also on man-made structures like radio towers. During the breeding season, they nest in caves, hollow trees, thickets, even piles of rock, although they don't really build a nest, just find a good spot to lay an egg. Because they become slightly hypothermic at night, they're often seen in the morning in a spread-wing stance, their back facing the sun with their wings slightly spread. This stance is believed to serve multiple functions, including raising their body temperature, but also drying their feathers and killing bacteria. It's seen more frequently after a damp or rainy night. During the day, vultures set out alone to forage. Now, you'll often see them in groups at a carcass, probably because they all followed the same smell. One of the things that makes vultures so valuable as scavengers is that they have exceptionally corrosive stomach acid, more acidic than that of humans. They can digest carrion infected with bacteria that could be lethal to other scavengers and dangerous to humans like cholera, botulism, and anthrax, which consequently removes these pathogens from the environment. Unlike other raptors, which have sharp talons and strong feet, vultures' talons are relatively dull and their feet are relatively weak, which makes sense. I mean, after all, their prey isn't going anywhere or putting up a fight. When feeding chicks, they carry food back to the nest in their crop and then regurgitate it. Now behold, the majestic call of the mighty vulture. Oops, no, sorry, that was the red-tailed hawk. Let me, let me just get this. Okay, behold, the majestic call of the mighty vulture. Ah, no, that's not it either. Let's try this one more time. Behold, the majestic call of the mighty vulture. No, you didn't miss it. That was it. The truth is, vultures don't have a syrinx, the vocal organ of birds, so the only sounds they make are grunts or low hisses, which, again, not helpful for their image. Some other fun facts about vultures. A group of vultures in flight is called a kettle because as they rise on the thermals, they resemble water boiling in a pot. 
While resting, they're called a committee, and my favorite, when feeding on a carcass, a wake. And because just eating carrion isn't gross enough, in order to keep cool and kill bacteria that live on rotting carcasses, vultures will defecate on their own feet. Their featherless head also helps keep them cool in addition to reducing bacteria. I mean, carrion doesn't stick to bare skin like it does to feathers. When threatened by a predator or approached, vultures may vomit. Now, a common myth is that they projectile vomit as a defense mechanism, but the reality is that vomiting serves two purposes. One, it lightens their stomachs to make taking off easier, and two, it can serve as a distraction, attracting the predator to the expelled meal gives the vulture time to escape. One last note, turkey vultures, in my opinion, have one of the best scientific names, especially for a bird that specializes in eating carrion. Cathartes aura, which is Latin for cleansing breeze. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? By the fourth day, all that remained was the leg bones and hide, all moved roughly 40 feet or more from the original location. Except for the hooves, it was no longer immediately recognizable as a deer. It was just a strip of fur with some bones. The smell was already fading, probably since there was so very little left. To me, the most interesting things to see were the carrion beetles. We had seen a few on day two, but by day four, their numbers had grown exponentially. I was actually able to identify three different species of carrion beetle on our carcass. The American carrion beetle, the margined carrion beetle, and the ridged carrion beetle. American carrion beetles were by far the most numerous. They also stand out the most. American carrion beetles are between a half and one inch long. Their elytra, the hard covering of their wings, are black, but their head is yellow with a black spot in the center. Margined carrion beetles are a little smaller than American carrion beetles. Their elytra are dark red or light brown, and they have a red-orange margin around their head. They look kind of like a wide and more heavily armored version of a lightning bug. And, in fact, the iNaturalist app offered up lightning bug as a possible match. Ridged carrion beetles are about the same size as margin carrion beetles, but they're all black in color. Now, all three species have the same life cycle. Adult carrion beetles overwinter, emerging in the spring, and from mid-spring to early summer during their mating season, adult carrion beetles will begin arriving at a carcass, generally a few hours after the flies. They mate and lay eggs of their own and eat any maggots that have already hatched. Adults will remain on the carcass for as long as it lasts, feeding on the larvae of their competition in order to give their own offspring the best chance. Carrion beetles produce only one brood per year. The larvae look kind of like a pill bug, only longer. The carrion beetle larvae feed on both the carrion itself and the larvae of other species. Carrion beetle larvae especially like to eat the dried sinew, skin, and hide that are left behind after all the fly larvae have left. Eventually, the carrion beetle larvae drop to the ground and burrow into the soil to pupate. Carrion beetles also engage in a process called mutualistic phoraesis, which is a big mouthful of words that essentially means they act as ubers for a particular genus of mite. The mites hitch a ride to the carcass on the beetle, then drop off to eat the eggs and larvae of the flies. The mites will return to the adult beetles to be transported to the next carcass. I want to talk a little bit about another species of carrion beetle, the American burying beetle, because they're not only interesting, but they're an endangered species. American burying beetles are larger than other carrion beetles, getting up to about one and a half inches long. 
They're shiny black with four scalloped orange-red markings on their elytra and another orange-red spot on its head. They're strong flyers. They can fly up to about two-thirds of a mile every night, which is a good distance for a beetle. While other carrion beetles utilize any carcass, burying beetles rely exclusively on smaller carcasses, closer to the size of chipmunks or doves. Once a mated pair finds a suitable carcass and fights off other pairs if necessary, they will slowly excavate beneath the carcass and bury it, hence the name burying beetle. The pair then strips the fur or feathers, rolls it into a ball, and coats it with secretions that slow decomposition. After they mate, the female will lay her eggs in a nearby tunnel. In a few days, the eggs hatch. Both parents help feed and care for the larva, unusual in the insect world, spending about a week feeding off the carcass before the larva burrow into the soil to pupate, emerging as adults about six weeks later. Adult bearing beetles only live about one year. Now, historical records show that American burying beetles used to be found in 35 states, basically east of the Rocky Mountains and three provinces in Canada, but now they're critically endangered. Currently, there are self-sustaining populations in only four states, Rhode Island, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Nebraska. Reintroduction into other states has been attempted, but so far has not been successful. Now, no one knows for sure what caused the decline of the American burying beetle. Pesticides may have played a role, but their decline began even before the widespread use of DDT. Changes in land use may have decreased the number of suitably sized carcasses, and some researchers have suggested that the extinction of the once ubiquitous passenger pigeon may have impacted burying beetles. Other researchers have implicated light pollution as a possible contributing factor in their decline. American burying beetles are strictly nocturnal and prefer places that are exceptionally dark. Now, you might be thinking, there seem to be plenty of other carrion eaters. Why should we care about this one? Well, American burying beetles are considered an indicator species, one that can tell us whether its environment is healthy, and understanding why its numbers have declined can give us important information to help improve habitat, not only for this species, but for others as well. And really, no matter what the species, we should always be concerned about a loss of biodiversity. Five days after discovering our deer, what remained of the carcass, the lower legs, some vertebrae, and a pile of fur, had been moved again, now resting about 50 feet from the original location. The smell wasn't noticeable until you were standing right next to the remains, and by day six, the smell was pretty much gone. No big changes occurred to the carcass after this. The biggest change was that there were fewer carrion beetles and more maggots. A week after discovering the carcass, I observed two species of beetle that I hadn't seen before, a hairy rove beetle and a hister beetle. Not carrion beetles per se, but both often associated with carrion. Hairy rove beetles are about three quarters of an inch long, black with some white or cream colored patches on their abdomen. They have large eyes and are capable of inflicting a painful jab with their mandibles if handled roughly. Or so I've read. I didn't test this out. Unlike carrion beetles that rely exclusively on carrion, rove beetles can also be found in leaf litter, rotting fruit, and under dead wood. They can fly, I mean they're a beetle, but they're also frequently seen running on the ground and will raise the tip of their abdomen like a scorpion's tail. Now, they don't sting like a scorpion, but they do have a chemical defense against predators. The hairy rove beetle has glands that secrete an irritating substance, 
When threatened, the beetle will rotate its abdomen and wipe the glands on the offender to repel it. Ants seem to be the most frequent target. Hister beetles are also known as clown beetles because of their large flat legs that resemble tiny clown shoes. And they're small, at least the ones I observed were, maybe just slightly larger than a BB. Their shiny black and their elytra are slightly shorter than their wings. Like rove beetles, they're not found exclusively on carrion, but they can also be found in dung, dead vegetation, under bark, and sometimes in mammal burrows or ant colonies. Hister beetles are predatory and feed on the eggs, larvae, and even adult forms of other insects, in addition to also eating carrion. When they feel threatened, they'll sometimes play dead. By day 12, only a few carrion beetles remained. A smaller species of blowfly was present in large numbers, the black blowfly, something that if I hadn't taken the time to identify, I would have just called it a gnat because they're that small. I also observed ants on the carcass for the first time, and they were busy carrying away some of the remaining maggots. Hide beetles, or skin beetles, will be one of the last insects to arrive at a carcass. These are beetles of the dermistid family. Worldwide, there's between 500 and 700 species of dermistid beetle. As their name implies, these small beetles and their larvae will feed on the dried skin, hair, feathers, tendons, and bone that remain after all the other scavengers have done their work. They're the only beetles that have the enzymes to break down keratin, the protein that makes up things like hair, feathers, scales, nails, and horns. Dermistid beetles can be pests. They're sometimes called carpet beetles because they will consume natural fibers like wool, cotton, or linen. So they're often found in and cause damage to carpets. Also sometimes called bow beetles because they've been known to infest violin cases to feed on the bow strings. In museums, they can damage displays. A carpet beetle infestation caused extensive damage to the insect collection at the South Australian Museum in 2011. But museums also use these scavengers as a tool to clean skeletons, keeping colonies for just this reason and being very, very careful to make sure they don't escape into the museum itself. Now I have to say that witnessing the process of decay and learning about the scavengers that play a role was a fascinating experience. While bigger scavengers like raccoons and vultures are interesting, I was far more intrigued by the various beetle species that colonized the carcass and surprised at the speed with which it went from basically a whole deer to practically nothing. I really thought the process would take much longer. Now it's unfortunate that this deer was struck by a car and killed, but that said, it's amazing the quantity of life that thrived because of it. One man's carcass is a scavenger's banquet. There's a lesson in there somewhere, and that's where we'll end this episode. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave a like and follow so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you're enjoying Dispatches from the Forest and want to help support future episodes of the podcast, please consider heading over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest and becoming a patron. If you have a message for me, I can be reached by email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty.
The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast without express written permission.